put bumper stickers on everything. And so you'd see the statement, Jesus is Lord, plastered all over cars. When I went to the States last year, I still saw that quite often. Jesus is Lord on bumper stickers. But you know, that's, that slogan appears on mugs, on patches, on motorbike riders, as screensavers on our computers, and even massively on billboards outside churches. But those are just billboards if they are not lived out. And they become an insult to Christ and the opposite of bringing glory to Him if what's said isn't lived out. But if we apply that principle today, that truth that Jesus is Lord, it will change your whole life around. It will give you purpose and it will protect you from adversity. And these believers that the Apostle was writing to were suffering for their faith. And the Apostle wanted to enlighten and comfort them and encourage them and to strengthen them in the midst of suffering. And from this point on in the epistle, from chapter 3, verse 13 onwards, right through to the end of chapter 5, he now specifically addresses how to handle suffering and what are the practical implications of that in your faith. I don't know what the Lord has in store for us. I don't know why He's given us this specific part of the book to be looking at this year. But here is the truth of God in front of us. He has things done in His timing and we must just do what He tells us to do. And so as we come to this text this morning, I want you to ask me to just dive into it a little bit to investigate what God is saying here to us this morning. And to do that, we've got to go to the main center of this passage, and that is found in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is the main crux of this whole passage. It is is the central point around which everything else revolves. You'll all know the Lord's Prayer. What is the second line in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's our main purpose on this earth. It is to hallow or to make God's name great in everything that we do say and live out. We, are, we exist to give God glory. The old catechism said, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God, there it is, and to enjoy Him forever. You see, when... We glorify God. It starts in our hearts, at our very core, and it spreads out to all aspects of our lives. Because from our hearts, our actions come. And so this little word here, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, that word sanctify means to set apart. It means to lift up. And there's old choruses from the 80s, you lifted up Jesus' name. Okay? It means to regard Him as the holiest being in all the universe. There is no peer for the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. There should be in our hearts no rival to Him. He should be set apart in our hearts. He should be lifted up in our hearts. He should be the one that we love the most. Our greatest treasure in in this life. 
He should be right at the center of our hearts. Now, I know my heart. I don't know your heart. But I know in my heart, He's not always at the center of my heart. We so quickly get distracted and other things take central place in our hearts. He should be the main focus in our hearts. Not me, but the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you've got the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of your heart, your whole life will change. You'll get up in the morning and you'll say to yourself, today the ultimate purpose of my life is to sanctify Christ as Lord in every single thing I do. And immediately you've got purpose, you've got direction, and you've got energy because He is doing it in you. You are going to glorify Him and sanctify and set Him apart in your life for that whole day. And so the business that you do that day, you do in such a way that you set Christ apart. When you deal with colleagues at school or at work, you deal with them in such a way that in everything you do with them, you are setting Christ apart. You are setting Him above everything else. When you see to the needs of your children, you do that in such a way that even in those menial tasks, you are setting Christ as Lord in your life. When you deal with those difficult customers and difficult people, you will deal with them even in such a way that He is set apart in your life. When you serve your fellow believers in this church, you will serve with a willing heart. Why? Because you are doing it as unto the Lord. Why? He is set apart in your life. Do you see how it changes our lives? It's an immense truth, this one. It's one of the central truths of this whole book, this letter of 1 Peter. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Set Him apart in your life. Our text says, sanctify Christ as Lord. This little word Lord here that we find attached to the name of Christ specifically applies to Yahweh of the armies. And that was a real interesting fact for me to find out as I studied this text. In other words, in the Old English Bible, it said Christ is Lord of hosts. In the NIV it says He is Lord Almighty. You see, it's not just Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ, Lord of the armies. He is almighty. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. Let's just glance back in the Old Testament to see where this was used. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. This is the meaning attached to this phrase, Christ as Lord. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13 and the first part of verse 14. Look at what it says. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. In other words, you are to have awe of him. And then he shall become a sanctuary. Do you see what happens? When we put the Lord Jesus Christ in his rightful place in our lives... Then he becomes a sanctuary. Do you see now why the Apostle Peter gives them these specific words at a time when they are under extreme persecution? He's saying to them, set Christ as Lord in your life, as number one, set him apart in your, in your lives, as Christ who is Lord of the armies, the Almighty One, and then he will become your sanctuary, even in these difficult times. He is the all-powerful one. He is to be our only hope. 
And then Christ takes His rightful place. But you'd ask, so what has setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts to do with the rest of this text we've just read? Well, the key is found in verse 14. Go down to verse 14. The second half of that, verse 14. Where it says, Do not fear the intimidation and do not be troubled, but, and there comes our phrase, but sanctify the Lord. But sanctify Christ as your Lord. You see, that is the problem. The problem is the fear and the, and the anxiety and the intimidation that is feared by men. And the solution is found right next to it. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Set Him apart. Sanctifying Christ as Lord in your life is the only alternative to fearing man and to fearing what comes across our way. There is no other way. You either sanctify Christ as Lord or you have to deal with your problems in your life on your own. There is no alternative. When we show that we are fearless of men and that our hope is unshakable and when the world around us sees that faith in us, they see it as real and it looks genuine in us and through that God is glorified. And that's why the Apostle says to them, sanctify Christ as Lord and then it doesn't matter what comes against you. The world will see that you've got a real faith and a genuine faith and God will be glorified. And then what he does is he goes into a wider application and now I'm going back to verse 13, alright? So you're still with me? We started right at the core We've looked at the problem that brings a solution and now it's the practical application going out from there. So when Christ is set apart as Lord in our hearts, we will have a passion for goodness, says verse 13. Look at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So what is the assertion he's making there? We should be zealous for what is good all the time and then if think people come against us because of what we're doing, the good, then we need not fear them. We need to be zealous for what is good. We need to have a passion for goodness. The word zealous there comes from, the, a word is derived from that, the word zealots. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the zealots were the ones who were really on fire for their cause. We need to be on fire for goodness. We need to have a burning desire in us and it should characterize our lives by what we do and those things we support and we stand for. It should be for goodness and it should be seen in our words, our thoughts, our deeds and our service. Be that in this church or in the community. We should be on fire for goodness. And then when people come up against us and they revile us for doing good, we need not fear them. Because we are are in obedience to the Lord. You see, the world generally supports people who do good. I mean, the world isn't against volunteers in the community, are they? They don't say to them, how come you guys volunteer? You guys, you're just prissies. Why do you do this? They don't do that. The world is generally supportive of volunteers, of disaster recovery workers. They are really supportive of them. You just need to go to a program like Extreme Makeovers and look at Look at the way people really get behind these causes. People doing good in the community. So the world isn't against people doing good. However, watch how the world changes when you publicly add the following phrase. We are doing this good in the name of Jesus Christ. 
look what the world does then. Because that little label suddenly brings up this term, what? It starts with an F. Fundamentalist. You fundamentalists, you are just doing this so that you can try and influence these people to take on your religion. And suddenly the good isn't seen, suddenly the motive is looked at. And even for doing good, the world will come up against us as believers. But the Bible says to us, be zealous for doing good. And then if the world comes against you, don't fear. Make Christ central in your life and He will be the one that protects you. Secondly, we see that when Christ is set apart as Lord in your heart, you will have a willingness to suffer. And we see that in verses 14 and 17. Glance at your text, please. He says that even if we should suffer for the sake of righteousness, we are blessed. You see, Jesus suffered for the sake of righteousness, didn't he? What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He brought this earth good news. He brought them a way back to the Father. They were lost in sin and Jesus came and brought them and made possible a way back to the Father. He brought them forgiveness for all sin. And in their gratefulness, what did mankind do? They killed him. Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake. Glance down at chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. We'll be looking at that text next week. But Jesus suffered for doing good. And he said to us that we should expect hostility. But this is the crunch. The hostility is going to come against us believers. That is a fact. But when it does come, it is no time for compromise. And you know, in churches today, and as a pastor working into the community, I see this and hear this so often. Believers who've had adversity against them, and that feel God is now against me, and I'm walking away from the church, I'm walking away from God, because God hasn't been looking after me. Adversity will come against us. It is no time for compromise then. Don't walk away. Come closer to God's people. Draw closer to the Lord. Make Him Lord of your life. And He will be with you in those times. You can't walk away from adversity. Adversity will follow you if you're a believer. And it will come up again and again. And are you going to walk away the rest of your life? And then when you stand before the Lord one day, what are you going to say to Him? He's going to say to you, My child, I brought adversity against you to grow you. And what did you do? You turned and walked away from me. Why? Tell me why. It's just called disobedience. And one day we are going to have to give an account. God's word says this morning to us that we need to be willing to suffer if Christ is at the center of our heart and our hope. You see, if Christ is at the center of our heart and our hope, whatever comes against us, we will stand because Christ is there and He is with us in that situation. And it doesn't matter how big those waves are that come up against us. It doesn't matter when we lose our jobs. It doesn't matter when serious illness hits us. It doesn't matter when we get reviled by people for doing good. Christ is, at the, Lord of our, is the Lord of our hearts and we can stand because we are standing in His strength. We are to be focused in Him. There's a second part to that phrase over there and that's a blessing when we do undergo suffering. What does the verse say? 
But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. That's kind of amazing to read over there. You see, what happens when we suffer? What is this blessing that suddenly come on us? Well, just glance back at verse 12 and you'll see it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. You see, that's the blessing. Because when you come under extreme suffering, God's word promises you and I that the eyes of the Lord are on you. His ears attend to your every prayer. You thought you had God's attention just normally, you do. But when you come under extreme suffering, when you come under suffering at any, of any kind as a believer, the eyes of the Lord are on you. He is watching your every move. He is guiding your step. His ear is open to every prayer and every cry that utters from your and my lips. That is the promise of God Almighty, the Lord of the armies. I am with you. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Let's see what Jesus said about suffering. What did Jesus himself say about suffering, the one who suffered so much on our behalf? Matthew, chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Now, this is a verse that contains so many seemingly, seeming contradictions. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 10. 5, verse 10, sorry. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. I'll start again. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Hang on, that can't be right. Let's read it again. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when Jesus is set apart in your life and suffering and persecution comes your way, God will give you a willingness to suffer for him too. And it will be to his glory. Thirdly, we see that when Christ is set apart as Lord in our hearts, we will have a readiness to defend the faith. I recently watched this silly TV program. I should have been doing something else. But it was these ladies who were asked why they loved these men. And so this, lady, this woman was asked, why do you love this person? Oh, she said, he's got such a beautiful dimple. And I thought, how deep, how profound. <laughs> you know, if someone were to ask you as wives and as husbands, why do you love your wife? Why do you love your husband? And I know wives, you sometimes ask yourself that question. <laughs> but would you be able to tell someone else why you loved them? If I called you to the front and I said, Chris Donaldson, why do you love Jenny? I wonder if he'd be able to give a good reason. He will. <laughs> and mean, if I had to say to you, why do you love golf so dearly? I'm asking myself that question. Would you be able to give a reason for that great love that you have? If someone asked you the question, why are you a Christian? At work. Hey, tell me, why do you hope in 
this Jesus Christ for forgiveness or to help you or to give you joy that you keep talking about and we're going through job losses. Why? Can you give a reason for your faith? Or maybe your answer to them would be, oh, I haven't really got a good reason. I've just grown up this way. You hear so many Christians saying that. Or maybe when someone asks you a reason for your faith, your answer is, well, it seemed like a good gamble. I've heard that one here in New Zealand. Or maybe to that question, why do you love Jesus Christ? Tell us. You say, well, everyone's got a religion, so I just decided to choose Christianity. Does that answer bring glory to Christ? I don't think so. You see, what the Apostle is pointing to here is he's saying, if you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, as number one in your heart, you will be able to tell others why you love him. Because he's all important to you. You will be able to give a reason. And you'll be able to give a biblically clear explanation, an accurate explanation of why you have found a hope in Jesus Christ. You see, it's not enough just to say, oh, I love him, he's an awesome God. You need to be able to give a reason for the faith that you have when people ask. If you're intent on sanctifying Christ in your life, says the Apostle, and making him number one in your life, you will be ready to tell others why you love him in the same way that you can tell them why you love your husband or God. You see, he's calling us here, and he uses two specific words here. He's saying you'll be able to give a defense and an account. Those things are based on truth, not just on feelings. That's why we've got things like that little gospel DVD that we give out. And if you're unsure, you can actually go to it, look at it, and in some way try and formulate why you love the Lord Jesus Christ. So that next time someone asks you, you can actually logically and clearly set it out for them and do that, showing them the love that you have for the Lord as well. When that Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door next time, as they do so often, does the door get just shut on them with no further conversation? And I've been guilty of that. Or do you invite them in and with gentleness and reverence, says our text, Explain to them why you love the Lord Jesus Christ and why he is the only way back to God. You know, a good trick when you're working with them is to say, I'm going to give you time to explain about your faith to me, but I want you to just give me a minute and I'm going to tell you why the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Is that okay? And then they usually say, yeah, because they want to get a word in. And then you tell them, and now they've heard the gospel. And then you let the Holy Spirit use that to convince their hearts, because you are not going to convince them with your arguments. They've done a lot more study than most of us sitting here. And they know why they believe what they believe, even though it's wrong. But we need to give them the gospel. So next time there's that knock on the door, invite them in, give them the gospel, and then sit and listen, and give them a cup of tea. You see, this text says to us, sanctify the Lord and keep a good... Sorry. Verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We need to do that. Don't shut the the doors in their faces. We need to use resources like 
This one from Rose Publishings, which gives what different religions believe. Point by point, their key writings, what they think, who they think God is, who is Jesus in these religions. And you can actually go and look it up for yourselves, study it, and next time when they come in, and look up Jehovah's Witnesses because they're there quite often, so study them, and then you know what answers to give them. For instance, they immediately you can go to that Jesus is God's only son. He wasn't created by God. He is God. And immediately they'll say, no, they can't agree with it. So you need to know those basic things. But that means we've got to ha- put some effort into our faith. If Jesus is number one in your life, how much effort are you going to put into knowing why you believe what you believe? Is he really number one? If he was, you would. You would put in a lot of study and time and effort. Your golf swing. How much time do you take perfecting that golf swing? Because it's important to you. If Jesus is number one in your life, then take more time to study the word and to know why you believe what you believe. And then when someone knocks on the door, you can give an account of your faith. There's a story told of a farmer in a church who was a believer and he was really concerned for his lawyer that he'd been seeing about some transactions to do with his farm. And so he decided he was going to go and tell his lawyer about Jesus Christ. It was really on his heart to do so. And so he made an appointment with the lawyer and he went to see him. But with every part of that conversation, the lawyer seemed to twist his words, to turn around his arguments. And he seemed to ask this man questions which he couldn't answer. And in the end, he so befuddled this man that the man just said, look, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go. And he left. And he was greatly depressed. He went home. He found his wife there in the kitchen and he said, listen, I don't want to see anyone else today. Just tell my farm workers to carry on. I'm going to go to my room. I just want to take this to the Lord. He said, I've so failed God. I did such a miserable job of trying to present the gospel to this, to this man, to try and introduce him to Jesus Christ. And so he went to his room and shut his door. A little while later, there was a knock at the door. And there was this lawyer standing there. And he said, ma'am, may I speak to your husband, please? And she said to him, I don't think he wants to speak to you today. And he said, no, I think he will. And so she took him. And when the farmer saw the lawyer at his door, he said, sir, I don't want to argue anymore with you. I can't. I'm so sorry that I gave such a feeble witness of my Lord to you. But I just loved you and I wanted you to be saved and that's why I came to you. See my heart. And the lawyer said to him, sir, I came here today because I want to be saved. I want you to tell me how to come to this Jesus that you are so passionate about. And the farmer said, what? I thought you could answer everything I said. You seem to twist everything I said. And the lawyer said, it wasn't anything you said. I can bring an argument against all those. But when you prayed for me before you left, I saw your heart. You cried for me. And I saw that this Jesus, who could make you so passionate and so loving me, and with that message on your heart, I want to know that Jesus. Show me how I can know that Jesus You cried over my soul. I want to be saved. You see, the Bible here says to us that we, when we witness to people, we are not to be prosecuting attorneys. Okay? You don't have to have your case so set out that the other guy hasn't got a foot to stand on. Our purpose is not to win arguments. It is to win lost souls, says the Apostle. We are to do that with gentleness and reverence. And then fourthly, Verses 16 to 17 says the Apostle, 
If Christ is the most important to you, you will be able to tell others why you love Him. And you will have a pure conscience in your dealings every day with people. You see, this topic of the conscience is quite a controversial one. You only need to speak to psychologists today and they will tell you all kinds of theories on the conscience. But all that the conscience is, is an internal judge that witnesses to us. It either approves of our actions or it accuses us when things are done wrongly, says Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. You see, the conscience functions as a skylight, not as a lamp. It's not its own source of light. It reflects light. It lets light through, rather. It doesn't reflect it. It lets light through into our lives. It is moral light that it lets through into our lives. And to unsaved people, it lets through God's general revelation in the creation, in the actions of other believers. When people witness that, that is God's moral light coming into the lives of unbelievers. And in the believer, the conscience is God's word. The light of God's word shining into our consciences, teaching our consciences through the work of the Holy Spirit. But because we're all tainted by sin, every single person has a conscience tainted by sin as well. And when we persist in disobeying God's word as believers, that window of the conscience gets dirtier and dirtier with sin and less and less moral light can come into our lives. And so our conscience can't do the work that it's supposed to be doing anymore because now it is tainted by sin. And so it leads in the end, if we don't deal with our sin in our lives, it leads to a defiled conscience, says Titus 1.5. And when that is not dealt with in the end, it leads to a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2 speaks about that. And that is what you'd see in someone who is no longer sensitive to right and wrong anymore and their values have been completely warped. For instance, a criminal who feels guilty when they squeal on their friends but they feel intensely happy when they succeed in a crime. Do you see how the conscience has been warped? Listen to me today about conscience. Don't listen to what psychologists tell you. This is God's word which says this to us. The conscience is a safeguard only when the word of God is the teacher in our lives and the Holy Spirit gives us discernment to know when things are right and wrong. Hear me today. And so the Bible says to us in verse 16, keep a good conscience. That word keep means there's effort involved. You can't just think it's going to come by your life by osmosis. I'm going to have a good conscience just because I'm a Christian. No, you've got to keep a good conscience. How do you get a good conscience? By studying God's Word, letting the moral light of the Word come into your mind and influence your, and influence your conscience so that you can make right decisions, so that you can know what is right and what is wrong. We need to keep close to God's Word. We need to keep a good conscience. You see, when Christ is Lord and we fear only God, says this text, we need not fear the threats, the opinions or actions of our enemies. Why? The psalmist said it so beautifully. He said, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118 verse 6. And the apostle says to us today, if God wills, then suffer for doing what is right, verse 17, but do so without fear 
and by keeping a good conscience before the Lord. Do you see how the central truth influences all these practical aspects of our lives? It influences everything in our lives. Our hope, our ability to do good, suffering, being able to tell others why we love the Lord, our consciences remaining pure. In conclusion today, I'd like to bring you this story as an illustration. Just listen to what it says. A believer was fleeing from his enemies during a persecution in North Africa. And this is a true story that's been brought down from the church there. And as he was pursued over hill and, and through valleys and over hills and through valleys, in the end he was so exhausted that he fell exhausted into this cave. And there he lay, expecting death. And as he lay there, he watched this little spider starting to spin a web. And in a matter of a few minutes, it had spun a partial web right across this cave entrance. And when the man's pursuers arrived, they started searching around there. And when they got to this cave, they noticed that the spider's web was there. And so they thought, well, if there's a spider's web, there's no, no one's going to be in there. And they left. And this man was recorded in Swahili saying these words, Where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. Where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. I'm going to repeat that. It is core to what we are saying here today. It sums it up. And I should have just given a two-line sermon today. Here it is. Listen to these words. And ask yourself, is this true in your life? Where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. You see, if God is central in your heart, that is all protection that you need. That is all the hope that you and I need in this life. We don't need anything else. But without God, it doesn't matter how much of a wall we put up with money, with friends, with good times, with anything else that can take the, take the place of God. It will never give us protection in this life. It will never give us the hope that we need. It will never give us the, the real joy that the Bible speaks about. Where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. It just doesn't exist. And so you see, biblical Christianity, according to the Apostle Peter here today, is a Christ-exalting religion. When Christ is sanctified or set apart in our hearts as Almighty Lord, we will be protected in any adversity that man can throw at us. When, others, when, we take, when other things take the place of Christ in our hearts, we are left with no protection. That's basically what the Apostle is saying here today. I wonder where you're at this morning. Is Christ number one in your life? Is He at the center of your life? When you get up in the morning, do you firstly think, Lord, I need to set you apart today? Or do we immediately start thinking about the school timetable and all those, that homework that I didn't do? Or maybe those assignments that I still need to do and I've only got an hour or two left. Is that what we think? Or I'm going to do what I do to magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be center in my life. You see... If He is centre in our lives, those we come into contact with 
will see it. They will see through our lives. We won't have to put up bumper stickers. We won't have to wear big patches on our back saying, Jesus is Lord. Our lives will shout it out if Jesus is number one. I really ask you this morning, as the church here at Whanganui East, and the church is the gathering of believers, that's you and I sitting here today, let's make Jesus number one in our lives. In the life of this church, let's make Jesus number one in the life of this church. Let's do everything we do to glorify His name first in all the outreaches we do, in all the Bible studies we have, in all the church services we have. Let's put Jesus first and then everything else will shout out His glory. That's my prayer from my heart today. Let's pray together. Lord, our Heavenly Father, this passage either convicts us today or it passes us by. Because every single one of us sitting here can own up that you, Lord Jesus, are not number one in our lives all the time. It might be for some time, it might be on Sundays when I do my quiet time, but not all the time. And Lord, that is the standard that you are calling us to this morning, to sanctify Christ, to set you apart in our lives as the Holy One, the awesome, almighty God of the armies, the One who has all power, the Lord of hosts. You are the One in whom our hope is to be founded. And yet, Lord, so often we recognize that with our minds. But when we get into difficult situations, we so quickly fall back onto our own means. We so quickly fall back onto our checkbooks. We so quickly fall back onto the advice of our friends. Lord, help us to make you number one. To magnify your name in our lives. And you've promised, Lord, that it doesn't matter what comes against us then. Even if we get persecuted for doing good, you will bless us. And you will be with us in those situations. And you will use those situations to your glory. Because in the end, we exist to give you glory. Lord, that is a cry from my heart. And it is a cry from this church, this body of believers. We want to make Jesus Lord. Keep us faithful, Lord. Keep us faithful to that task, we pray. Amen.